Hey, everybody. So I am fresh off an interview with a man named Zoltan Ishvan. He has one of the coolest careers I have ever learned about. And just to give you a quick rundown of some of the things that this guy has done, he was a writer for National Geographic. He's the inventor of volcano boarding, the author of the best-selling book, The Transhumanist Wager. Uh, most recently, he was a contender for governor of California as a libertarian. And, you know, he's, he's got a lot more than that, lots of other publications, lots of other writings. And he was even, even put in a bid for president of the United States in 2016. We talk about a number of those subjects and more in this interview. It's a quick one, but I think you're still really going to enjoy it. It's bite-sized. And so uh, love to get your feedback at the end. Without further delay, please enjoy this episode, episode seven, Knowledge of College with Zoltan Ishvan. Welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. It's Patrick Butler, the host. And today I have with me the great Zoltan Isfan. And I have to start off with a question that I feel like we won't be able to get to anywhere else in this interview. How does one go about inventing volcano boarding, if not by accident? <laughs> well, you know, a long time ago when I was <laughs> uh, very young, I was sailing um, across the South Pacific. And um, I was passing by in Vanuatu, this amazing, uh, I guess, mountainscape. And, um, but it was a volcano. And when you've seen it, you understand, like if you're a snowboarder, the very first thing you want to say is, my God, I want to ski or snowboard down that. So seven years later, um, when I got a job at National Geographic, they were looking for assignments. And I said, look, I have a brand new sport to invent. All I, I need is to get to Vanuatu with my snowboard. And that's how... Uh, volcano boarding was born. The great thing about it is that the volcano is constantly erupting, so you're kind of constantly avoiding lava bombs and poisonous gases and stuff like that. So that's how it got born. Just, I guess, very serendipitous. I just sailed by and thought, oh, that needs to be boarded. That is awesome. I love that. I love that. Um, you know, to get a little bit more up to date with sir, what you've been up to, you know, you're, you're a contender for the governor of California. And the first thing that came to my mind was, and as a libertarian too, keep in mind, uh, first thing that came to my mind was like, what what would inspire you to take on such a daunting task? Like that, that is a... Well, yeah, yeah. It, is, it is daunting. It's definitely daunting. But ultimately, you know, what it really comes down to is um, I had just finished a, a run for the U.S. presidency. I had no, in, you know, no hope of winning, but I realized that it was a great way to spread uh, my message. And of course, my message is of radical science and technology. And uh, so I was uh, essentially, um, you know, uh, coming after two years of campaigning. And then I thought, ah, well, how can I follow that up? And of course, the, the new elections were coming. And I thought, well, maybe what I've been trying to do would go over better in California. And, uh, you know, California is this kind of crazy place 
were, they can accept wild ideas like transhumanism. And, um, you know, so I decided to run for governor thinking, ah, that's, you know, the next best thing to running the, for the U.S. presidency. Sure. Yeah. You, I, I read one of your articles. It's, you know, it's like California could be the largest economy in the world. Forget the 10th largest. Well, and of course, you know, in addition to, you know, putting forth science and technology, I also, um, you know, really think California has some major problems. You know, we have an enormous homeless problem. We have an enormous problem with inequality. We easily have the largest uh, poverty rate, you know, in America. We have 13 million people in California that are li literally living at right above or below the poverty line, which is about $24,000, $25,000 a year, even for a household of four. So th that's, that's just insane when you give, you know, given how much wealth there is in California. So naturally, I was actually running on a bunch of platforms, including trying to improve the state, which has uh, got the best weather, but I don't think we have a lot of the best social policies. I, I agree with you there. And I, I think it's so interesting that like running on a platform of, you know, better, longer life, you'd think that that'd be an appealing thing to people. But, uh, you know, I, it's still libertarianism is still sort of not even close to mainstream transhumanism is. No. And, you know, yeah. and I'm, as a libertarian, I'm not like too far on the right. I'm actually a little bit on the left, trying to be a little bit nicer to people. And you would think it, the message would go well here, but in California, it's the polarization has just hit the state so bad. And when you talk about like bashing the Republicans or bashing Trump, a lot of it is generated from California. And, you know, I'm not going to say one thing is good or one thing is bad. What I'm just trying to say is the people here are fundamentalists. A lot of times we don't realize that. We think, oh, California one's open-minded. It's not really the case. Um, when it comes down to thinking about personal liberties and stuff like that, a lot of Californians are incredibly closed-minded. And the, the juxtaposition between those that have money and those that don't make it even more so. So, um, you know, I found, I found the run for governor very difficult. I was knocked out in the primaries, unfortunately. Um, you know, we did get a lot of press and we got a lot of our message out. But really, it was, a, it was a hard time, and I was uh, disappointed. I felt like in the U.S. presidential run, well, I had no chance to actually win there. I did have a chance to win in California. It was really a matter of numbers here. Um, we, we made a huge difference in terms of the media. But in California, even the media, it was difficult to, to get on board. We did get a lot of it, but not nearly as much as during the presidential campaign. Got it. Got it. Uh, tell me, it, you know, what, what is your definition of libertarianism? Yeah, I feel like it's something that a lot of people, they hear and they probably get the wrong idea about it. Well, yeah, my definition of libertarianism is pretty simple. It's, um, you know, uh, keep the government out. It's really simple. And, and that's, you know, I, I'm not like one of those over-the-top libertarians, too. You know, I'm a kind of a small guy when it comes to it. But I'm, as an entrepreneur, someone who's bought and sold businesses, someone who has uh, been in real estate also for a long time. And if, if you do any kind of development, you realize that they want to like just put every single regulation on you to try to build a home. As someone who's gone through that for 15, 20 years, um, I'm incredibly disappointed with the way government interferes with our lives. Now, I understand uh, I'm not so far out that I don't want driver's licenses and things like that. In a day-to-day -day routine, it's like they are all over, the, the government is all over the place, stomping out your rights, and also um, literally trying to just hold you back. Really, it's the holding me back that bothers me the most, especially when it concerns things like radical science and radical technology. We would be like 10, 15 years way into the future 
if there was a lot less regulation, just even in the last decade. But the government is all over just trying to, um, you know, stop it, tax it, you know, make money off it and control it. And I don't like people that try to control. Besides the government holding back radical technology, do you think academia is playing any part of that or do you think they're accelerating it? Well, I think what happens is academia is broadly liberal and 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 hard liberal, oftentimes a borderline socialist, and um, so with good intentions, a lot of academics might be holding it back just because that's the nature of their political perspective. But I think really, you know, um, if you really want to ask me what's holding radical science and technology back, sure. it's actually a lot of the religious ideas in and cultural ideas that Americans have. We are uh, afraid of radical science. We are afraid of radical technology because a lot of it goes against either biblical perspective or it just is over the top given, you know, what we're, you know, who we are as human beings. You know, uh, when, when, you know, they try to do things like anesthesia or when they, you know, first talked about uh, having combustion engines and things like that, we always have fought against people that have held conservatism as the base of their ideologies. A lot of times that was kind of came from a religious perspective. Now, as humanity has grown, everyone says, oh, okay, in the end of the day, having cars was great. Jet airplanes was great. Great medicine was great. But now you have something like a tiny chip implant in my hand, and all of a sudden, everyone freaks out and says, this is the mark of the beast. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is a way so that when I go surfing, I don't have to have my house keys um, in the water with me in my wetsuit hidden somewhere or hidden underneath my car where someone can steal them. I just have it built into my hand. It's the next step of technology, but a lot of people see it from their cultural ideal, ideolo- you know, ideology first. And I think that's a bummer, and that also holds us back. But I think actually what really holds us back the most is government trying to tax us, government trying to make money off innovation instead of government just staying out of the way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, do you see how... Because. Uh, I love the idea of, you know, like, like I can see like an implant being like a harmless thing. And then uh, I can also see, you know, people that I, I know as, as libertarians could see that as being, you know, like so close to the line of infringement on our privacy and like, you know, the, you know losing all your liberties and freedoms that way. Like, like, do you, like, what do you think about that sort of, uh, you know, that conflict there? Well, I think that are, I think those libertarians that are opposed to it are a hundred percent right. They are worried about tracking. They are worried about lack of pri- loss of privacy. They're worried about a lot of good ideas. But the cell phone is sort of that same idea or the internet. The internet is a way to follow us, but it's also a way for us to gain a huge amount of information all around the world in a very libertarian-esque manner. You know? And I think the cell phone is sort of the same thing. The amount of communication, the amount of speed, the amount of efficiencies that we gain from being able to, you know, for example, just do this podcast together. Um, That is worth the trade-offs that we get from the chance that we lose some of our privacy through this technology. Now, I've told, you know, people come to me and say, Zoltan, what job should I do in the future? And I say, become a cybersecurity expert or a cybersecurity coder. Because that's where I think a lot of the the best money is going to be made and also the biggest future. I mean, everybody's worried about privacy. Uh, it does, it's not, it's not only a libertarian type thing. So I think, um, the future there is really to make sure when we have new technologies that come out like this implant in my hand, we make sure that there are ways for, I can protect myself. So nobody does kind of come and steal my data or 
follow me. I mean, I, those are things that I don't want necessarily. Maybe sometimes I do want to be followed if I'm in the jungle alone in it, in the Amazon on a three day track, and I'm you know it might be good to be followed for safety reasons. So, but we want the software to do that. And so, really, it's up to libertarians, I think, to push so that we have the the features in these technologies that allow us to maintain our libertarian viewpoints without um, sacrificing the fact that technology is broadly good for efficiencies and, and good for humanity. That's very interesting. What, what do you, what do you think about, uh, like sort of down that same vein? I mean, do you, do you worry at all about like sort of the technology increasing to a point where we sort of, we lose like the, the handle on it, you know, like sort of like the way that Elon Musk is afraid of AI. I, I totally worry about it. And I'm, I'm also worried about AI, you know, as a libertarian, I believe that people should be able to create as much as they want. But I think if I knew <laughs> there was somebody out there who tomorrow was going to create an intelligence that's more sophisticated than humans, I actually think there we do need some type of person to step in and say, look, you know, because this, this starts getting in the way of the non-aggression principle. You know, mm -hmm. if what if somebody creates an AI and that AI takes over the world and he's like, look, I was, I'm a libertarian. I just wanted to do my thing. And yet that AI ends up destroying planet Earth. So at some point, there is this fine line between libertarians supporting AI and libertarians saying, we need some type of uh, regulatory environment that protects the human species in the same way that we would protect, you know, want an, an army or a military to protect us from invaders that come from some fascist country. So you know, it, to me, it comes down to national security. And that's where I think the NAP or the national non-aggression principle actually doesn't get violated by encouraging some oversight to AI. Again, I'm not saying government has to come in and regulate the whole industry, but could be community driven, could be privately driven, could be nonprofit driven, could be driven by a number of ways. But oversight of artificial intelligence and oversight of even some of the other technologies is very important. I mean, I, I understand the Chinese... Um, you know, government is working on augmenting the intelligence of their children. At some point, they will succeed with this, maybe in five or 10 years, and we'll have a generation of Chinese babies smarter than Americans and anyone else. This is a national security issue. Um, America must do something about that. It can't just say, well, you want to do your thing, and we didn't do our thing, and that's fine. I mean, we all wake up in 30 years, and, you know, your neighbor's literally twice as smart as you from a biological perspective. That doesn't work well. And environment and dating and making money and jobs. So at some point, it's, it's important to take a step back and say, libertarian or not, what is the best way for society forward? Obviously, maintaining all our freedoms or as much as possible. But technology is a beast or, you know, some kind of divine angel, let's just say hypothetically, that can either make your world wonderful or make it really horrible very quickly. And it's, it's, it's it, it, in, in terms of like seriousness, it's much more serious, I think, than the nuclear, um, let's say, bomb or something like that. In terms of historical precedence, AI and the radical technology like genetic editing that's coming through the pipeline now are going to be more impactful than the nuclear era. Wow, that's uh, you're scaring me. So uh, that, that's that's crazy, man. I'm, well, I mean. How did you start thinking like this? Like, at what point did you start looking so forward to the future and considering these possibilities? Well, you know, I, I had the luck of kind of right after college following 
following into a job at National Geographic. So I'd seen quite a lot of, you know, when you're a young, generally, I mean, I don't know if it's male, but when you're a young journalist, they often send you to conflict zones because that's a good way to earn your stripes and also to earn, I think, your key and prove yourself. And also, you know, you know, that person can do the job. So I went to a lot of dangerous spots, proposed those stories myself, and uh, saw a lot of terrible things, you know, in war zones and conflict zones and whatnot, as well as some pretty heavy stories. It got me thinking a lot about dying and a lot of what the value of life is. And, you know, as soon as you start thinking about that, you start thinking about the future. You start thinking about where is the future going to take us? And of course, I became a transhumanist through a, a, an incident I had in Vietnam um, when I was covering a story there and almost stepped on a landmine. And uh, it really sunk into my brain that I need to do more than just be a human on earth, like a journalist and a father as I am. But I wanted to dedicate my life to transhumanism, to overcoming death through science and technology, which a lot of experts think we could achieve in 20, 30, 40 years if we work hard enough. And um, so that's how I got involved in that, because I kind of made that decision to, um, to dedicate my life to advocating for this type of thing and spending my career promoting it. It's, um, you know, it's a strange thing to be doing, but that's how I got into it. But afterwards, all these other crazy futurist ideas, because you can't talk about life extension and transhumanism without talking about artificial intelligence and genetic editing. And then you can't talk about AI without talking about China, and you can't talk about China without talking about global politics. And all of a sudden, you're back to this kind of, you know, and that's even why someone like Vladimir Putin recently said, you know, whoever controls AI controls the world. Yeah. Wow. It's, uh, I find like, like, even when you start getting into the, you know, thinking just a couple decades ahead at the rate that things have been going, you know, even the past decade, it's phenomenal. So it's like, when you look forward 10 years, like, uh, it's intimidating for a lot of people. I think it's like such a gray area. To, to you, um, what, which technology do you think is going to break through first? I mean, there's so many that could, you know, sort of move us one way or another. Well, so, you know, the, the technology that a lot of libertarians despise and hate me when I talk about it, but the one that I know is, is coming, you know, is there are two um, companies now that are working on brain implants in California, Elon Musk's company, Neuralink, and Brian Johnson's company, Kernel. And even Elon Musk has gone on the record say he thinks within a few years there'll be a commercial product that connects your brain directly to a machine and allows it to interface with it, meaning that we could perhaps do Google directions in our head. Uh, I don't think we're going to have this podcast yet. We probably need a robotic eye to do so. But there's also people working on robotic eyes <clears throat> that directly tie into your, your brain. And in fact, there's like six different companies and universities doing this. You can download Netflix directly into your head or Facebook into your head. And already these brain implants that they have, there's about a half million around the world. Um, most of them are cochlear implants for deafness, but some are for Alzheimer's, some are for um, uh, different types of uh, uh, you know, neurological disorders, and some are actually militaries using. And um, the point of the story, though, is at some point we're going to be able to think in a machine very soon, probably five, 10 years, and communicate with AI or communicate with that machine intelligence in a way like we communicate with our cell phone, but just directly through our thoughts. And um, this is not only just a $100 billion industry, but potentially a trillion dollar industry. And companies are working on it like crazy. There's no way that Apple's going to remain a standalone phone. At some point in 20 years, maybe less, probably less, Apple becomes something that's in your brain or on your head 
or like your head, the ears, ear set, you know, your earpieces you're wearing right now, something tiny that is a part, an integral part of you that you can't lose, that never goes away, that allows you to communicate directly to whoever you want. And um, <clears throat> very controversial for libertarians because it puts technology inside you. And yet at the same time, it's, um, it's coming. It's just from a, a, an economic and efficient point of view, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. If there was a product available right now that you could sort of just like kind of plug into your brain, do you, would you be the, would you jump on it right away? Oh, uh, totally. <clears throat> I mean, wouldn't you want to have this podcast interview, you know, this conversation in our brains, wouldn't that be weird? And I know it would be really touchy. Uh, you know, I guess the very first person I'd probably, yeah. I mean, and you know, you'd be like all this information, but imagine if you're trading stocks or if you're a race car driver and you need information, you know, about your car or something like that. There's so many efficiencies by being closer to the technology that I think we're all going to want to do it. I, I think we're all going to want to do it too, but I, I feel like I'd wait till like Apple <coughs> the game. You know, I don't want to get like the Android version of the, the implant that's, you know, <laughs> sort of lopsided or not totally fluid. Well, and this is going to be the big problem is that there are going to be companies that come out there and say, oh, I, I have the, uh, you know, the Fanta Cola, not the, re the real cola, you know, or something like, you know, something mm -hmm. like that. And you're like, yeah. oh, it's so cheap. So I decided to go for the cheap. One. I mean, think of how many friends you have that go for cheap phones. Yeah. There's always some, you know, and, uh, and they're going to get the, the, the bad product and that might cause all sorts of, you know, I wrote an article for Vice about drug dealers. You know, drug dealers have shown interest in microchip companies because of this brain implant technology that the future of drugs might not actually come from plants, but might come from implants there where you download certain types of euphoric feelings and you pay for it that way, like maybe through Bitcoin or some cryptocurrency. And um, that could be the future of high, being high. Yeah. And, you know, and when I say there are people, drug dealers, I'm saying there's investments being made because, you know, after all, they're billionaires and they need to stay up with the market. And, um, you know, that's, that's also a whole strange world. And, you know, I know libertarians are very, like, like me, probably very pro-drug, uh, pro-anything you want to do. But at the same time, then they're like brain implant through a drug. Wait a sec. That, you know, that, that's, a, that's, again, a conflicting line. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What it, um or like it sounds like you you have so much information about this stuff. Like I've never heard that you know thing about the the you know drugs in the future or anything. Like who do you read? Like who do you listen to? Who are your who who are the people that you you know research and pay attention to? Well, you know it's funny. I've become so busy actually just with my my life of advocating for transhumanism that I almost never read anymore. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> but I actually um, I watch uh, a lot of every night. I almost exclusively watch a documentary or a sci-fi film. So I try to just keep my brain really inspired with art. And I'm also very close because of, you know, I'm like, for example, I'm leaving in two weeks to do a, a European speaking tour where I'll be speaking a bunch of places in Europe and also Armenia of all places, uh, uh, some, you know, <laughs> near Russia somewhere. And, uh, and uh, the point though, is that I'm constantly in this mix with a lot of strange people that are thinking strange things. And, some of the conversations are really fun in the middle of these capitals of nowhere. And all of a sudden you find yourself sharing a coffee with someone who's thinking these incredible thoughts. And I'm, I guess I'm, I, th I feel very lucky because 
a lot of the ideas, of course, I'm not necessarily coming up with. I'm just communicating what someone told me, and someone's just communicating what I told them. And, you know, sometimes on occasion I'll come up with an idea, but most of it is just either through word of mouth or a sci fi movie or a sci fi book we read or saw actually is hitting the nerve and someone starts a company. You wouldn't believe how many companies in Silicon Valley have been started because someone watched a science fiction movie and said, nobody's doing that. We can make a billion dollars. Let's try that. And that's what happens. And of course, most of them fail. But, uh, you know, for every, uh, you know, 90 that fail, 10 or two or three or five maybe make it. Wow. So you really use art as a, as a constant sort of inspiration. I think at this point, we've gone to the, the level of technology where it's going, it's growing so fast exponentially. The microprocessor, I mean, is literally, so, you know, just so you know, your, your audience knows, the new record for supercomputing was set this last year by America after overtaking China. They can do 200 trillion uh, calculations per second with their supercomputer. That's, I'm sorry, 200,000 uh, trillion calculations per second. Um, think of really what that, what that involves. Uh, this, this building was like five stories high. And it used to be 36,000 trillion calculations per second. Um, uh, the Chinese had it. But to give you an idea how fast these things are starting to move, and by next year, it could be like, we don't even know the numbers, like a Google number, you know, something yeah, insane yeah. by what's happening based on the fact that the microprocessor is continuing, not maybe as good as Moore's Law, but still every 18 to 24 months is continuing to try to jump or double in speed. And as long as that keeps happening, this J-curve of technological innovation is happening. So it's you need art to stay afloat with what's happening because, and you need science fiction because the future is coming a lot faster than I think most people realize. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's creeping up pretty quick. What uh, what are some of your favorite like sci-fi? Like, if you were to recommend like a, a movies or, or books or anything like that, like, what are some of your favorites that have sort of got you, you know, kept you interested? Um, you know, one of my favorites, because I often just, you know, your audience knows, I often focus on kind of the more either pop philosophy or sort of even quasi-spiritual ideas. I often write about AI in the context of God, even though I'm not really a believer in God, I'll often write about it because I find what would a robot do if it met God? Or, you know, some people have said we should convert robots to believe in God. I've been consulting with the U.S. Navy, and that was a question. That they had. They said, when we come up with AI, how do we make sure that it doesn't worship, let's say, Muhammad or something like that? Wow. <laughs> you know, or something like that. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is very, we want to make sure it, it follows in the American tradition. That's at least the, 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 the perspective of the U.S. Navy, which makes perfect sense. And, um, but the point, though, is how do we make sure that, you know, all these, <laughs> these things happen. So I write about this stuff and it's quite interesting, but a lot of the ideas are, you know, they, they can come from uh, places, but like one great book is called Childhood's End. And, um, you know, my sci-fi reading, I got to be honest, I try to read people that are unknown. And the reason I try to read people that are unknown, or I watch movies that are unknown, even B-rated movies, is because sometimes they have a seed, a kernel that's just so brilliant. And yet maybe the movie's not very good, but there's an idea in it to develop and that idea will go well. And, you know, I write for Wired Newsweek or wherever I write and stuff like that. So. Wow. I like that. That's really cool. You know, stay away from sort of like the mainstream and 
and catch the drift on the outside. That's that's awesome. Well, um, I, I know, you know, we're, we're sort of short of time. I was wondering if we could switch gears a little bit, because one thing I, I love to touch on uh, for my audience is sort of like focused on that point where, you know, whether you're like 18 or 21 years old, like when you had to make a pivotal decision to, to sort of like take on something, you know, different, you know, because clearly what you're doing is so unique, so different. You got such a phenomenal resume. It's so cool to see all this stuff. I think it's just inspiring by itself. Like, where were you? Like, was there any pivotal moment for you around that time, whether like before you went to college or right around college where you sort of had to, you you knew you were going in a different direction? Well, <clears throat> sure. I mean, look, my advice, I, I can give a little bit of advice. I, I feel bad giving advice, but, um, you know, I think for, for starters, my advice is um, don't, mar- don't marry too early. I think that's the number one advice I can give to a lot of things. And that, that sounds a little strange, but don't take your love relationships too seriously in your 20s because if you, first off you can have them again and again and you're always going to meet wonderful people and after all there's almost 8 billion people on the planet and um follow your dreams instead of following um the traditional life that you might find with a partner when you want to fall in love and get married and all those other things and i think for me that was very critical as so i was able to not fall into relationships that bogged me down and instead took on, you know, adventures that led me to brand new places. And so a lot of my pivotal moments, pivotal, uh, I guess, moments are breakups because they were moments when I actually left to do something completely different. And I'm not saying go out and break up with people. I'm, what I'm saying is that at least at a young age, don't commit yourself to another person, which often involves children which then changed the ball game. As soon as I had, as soon as I had children, there was no more volcano boarding. Mm. And, and that's because volcano boarding is dangerous. You can die very easily. And, yeah. and, and now you're a father. You have to come home. You have to feed them. You have to make mm. sure they don't put their tongue in a power socket, which is what babies did. You know. And mm-hmm. I have two da- young daughters right now. And uh, the, the point, though, is that all those dreams that I had, the wonderful things I did in my 20s, I visited a, 103 countries in my life now only happened because I had the freedom to do so. And I didn't have the monetary worries yet. Once you have a family, you got to really worry about shelter and food. And I mean, when I was 25, I, I was like, I don't look, if I sleep in a bus station, I sleep in a bus station. I'm out here for the adventure of my soul, not for the adventure of, you know, not taking care of somebody. And now that I'm a family man with a you know wife and a mortgage and all those other things, kids, you know, I can tell you that the the best things that happened to me happened because I had a, a large measure of freedom, and you need to protect that freedom, regardless whether you're in love, regardless whether your parents tell you to go. My, you know, my parents told me to become an electrician. That's what my parents told me. There's like, it's a good, steady job. You'll always have enough money. You know, they wanted me to become an electrician at 22 after college, and I thought this is crazy. I mean, it's not that that's a bad job at all. Not about not a bad job. It's a great job. It just happens to be, it's not a job for a 22-year-old who wants to go out and explore the world. Um, 22-year-olds should uh, get out there. So should 18-year-olds and all these other things. If you're in college, do a year away. Do Take a year off. Do something different. Whatever it is, break out of your mold and never let your parents or your girlfriend or boyfriend or whoever, partner or whatever it is tell you what to do. Always go after your, your the sense of adventure. And then at some point later, you can settle down because everybody settles down at some point generally. But the point is, don't waste your 20s because um, your health 
and your your energy are are something you'll never get back. Wow. Yeah, I think that's phenomenal advice. Um, it just one last question for you here. I mean, what you do, you know, going after you know political uh, you know, candidacies for for you know parties that aren't so popular, but ideas that you believe in. I think it's a really bold thing to do. And I think there's a lot of people that would like to do that same thing, but they're, they're nervous. They're afraid to sort of like, you know, brand themselves like that. Like, do you have any, you know, any shred of advice for, for someone like that who maybe is nervous to step into that political realm or. Well, I, I think the, the, the real advice is just look at the history of political candidates. <clears throat> Almost nobody wins the first time Trump, you know, excluded. Um, Almost everybody that has become somebody in the political world has lost three or four times. I mean, Nixon lost like three or four times the presidency before he actually won. So it's okay to lose. Losing is how you, it, it don't see it as losing. It's like <clears throat> how you meet your contacts for the next political campaign. It doesn't matter if it's a political campaign, it can be just as much the next job, you know, building yourself up the, the ladder or your career ladder or, or your academic ladder, whatever it is. But failure is something that is an opportunity. Never see failure as something that, it's the end of the road, except when it comes to death. Death is the end of the road. <laughs> but anything else up to that, I mean, I think uh, I could be 60 and still running for office. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, for example, took years and years before he actually became this huge persona in media that we all know. And, um, you know, that's oftentimes the case. So, you know, it doesn't matter, again, whatever political party, whatever leaning you are, whatever, it's failure is a part of the game but if you stay at it you're gonna win at some point it's just the numbers game so stick at it and you'll you'll eventually win and even if you don't win it's really about the change that you're causing and again you know especially what i'm trying to do i'm trying to spread a message i'm a message of science of technology and the wonder of the future and um, not about taxes and just social security and whatever else every other politician talks about i'm trying to spread an optimistic message about we can become something quite different than we are. And for me, loss is not even a question whether I'm going to lose. It's a question of, did I change somebody's life? And if I change their life for the better, I feel I've succeeded. Well, that is, I, I love that, man. I think you, the message that you're pushing is, is really amazing. It's really so unique. I think it's inspirational to a lot of people. Um, and I, I, you know, I think like you're, you're really ahead of the curve here. I think you're sort of riding a wave that's sort of just catching up. I, I don't know if you saw like Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan recently. He's like, they're talking about, you know, transhumanist ideas. They got like 14 million views. So I, I think you're ahead of the curve and I think, you know, it's sort of catching up to you. So, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, eventually you're going to win. Uh, I, I really appreciate your time tonight. I really appreciate you coming on. I got to recommend for everybody amazing book here transhumanist <laughs> thank you for showing that <laughs> please read it everybody please read it please go out and get it and um and thank you again zoltan it's been uh, really an honor to have you on the show hey man it's been a pleasure to talk to you great talk and uh, thank you for having me and thank you for showing my book absolutely absolutely I, my pleasure my pleasure